You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Shula Sapoiskim, and I call today's shear um, Halacha on the Half Shell. Of course, I know that's a term that's connected to oysters and non-kosher items. But I think the idea, though, is, is that it's something that you can eat without necessarily feeling that you are engorging yourself. It's raw with seasonings. Um, and I think for many people, halacha is, especially if it's directives of what to do, it's either dry uh, and therefore forgettable, or it's very long and complicated. And because of that, um, you're still not sure what you're supposed to be doing. We found the Mishnah Bura in Simon Kufnun Hay uh, that says that if you're learning just a small amount, then the main thing you need to do is to know to learn the halachos, Sheyeda Eichlis Nahig Lamaisa. What should you do, Lamaisa? But it also needs to have some grounding in where, like, why am I doing this? Okay, because the rabbi said so. There, there needs to be some knowledge together with the directive. And that's a trick. The idea of the three weeks uh, is, is clearly something that's somewhat vague. What is this period about? Um, and there is, a, again, a, a large debate as to what the Ashkenazim and how the Ashkenazim are different than the Sfarim. I, I do know that there's some historical differences between the communities. And therefore, it's definitely very possible that the Ashkenazi communities, which suffered more, sort of took advantage of this period, which was already given a title by the rabbis in the Medrash as a Beina Mitzarim, of a negative type of period, and injected in it more mourning habits than were done by the Sfaldim. Um, and, and that is a, a fact. There were, of course, certain types of osmosis. There were certain Sephardic communities that, like Morocco and other places, Morocco and, and Turkey, and even in Baghdad, that started to adopt many of the Ashkenazi customs of the three weeks. Chochem um, Avadi Yosef, uh, one of his uh, themes that he championed was that here in Eretz Yisrael, we're going to go with the Bet Yosef. We're going to go with Rabbi Yosef Cairo. And therefore, uh, we're going to have um, uh, weddings until Rosh uh, And people will be able to have meat in their restaurants until the week of Tisha B'Av. And uh, the reason why Chochem Avadi bristled uh, so, uh, against what had been the norm was because he felt there was an imposition from the Ashkenazi uh, movers and shakers and rabbinical figures in Eretz Yisrael. They felt that it would be a certain dissonance to have weddings that were um, happening from Sephardi couples after the three weeks that already started. Ashkenazi couples uh, would say, hey, why can't we have that wedding? So we knew that the minute Ashkenaz, which they didn't want to uh, move from, was not to have weddings from the period of, from the three weeks on. So for many, many years, that was the Rabbanut, uh, the Rabbanut's rule. And you couldn't really have a marriage that was in a way registered as a rabbinical marriage unless 
you had the rabbinate involved. So the Sephardim really were, were basically part of that same, uh, of that same program. Chacham Avadia, when he became the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, and then later the rabbi Roshi, was able to change that. And therefore, weddings started happening uh, in Eretz Yisrael for Sephardim till uh, Rosh Chodesh of. Now, I, I tell you all this because it's led to the sense that, hmm, that basically Ashkenazim, they are more machmir. They have the three weeks until... Uh, from from Shavuot to Batamas, but the Sfarim really don't start until later. The truth is, it's a lot more uh, subtle than that, and a lot more complicated. First, in the very first simon of Hilchos Tishabov, quotes a Chuva Ashkenazis. He doesn't mention its name. Of course, it's Rabbi Yaakov Malon, known as the Maril. Now, the Ramah, who wrote the uh, Hagos on the Shulchan Aruch, uh, criticized Cairo for not including more Maril for not recognizing that the minogim of, of 50, 60% of the Jews that he wanted to reach were not bound by his three pillars, which were uh, the Rambam and the Rif and the Rosh, but rather there was a whole German school that he was only partially processing and was using. It's strange here in this area, Cairo did his research and found this Juvas Mario. He doesn't mention that it's the Mario, but we know that's who it is, Juvas Ashkenazis. And he mentions the idea of not making a Shechionu during the three weeks. So even the, the, the Sephardi champion, the one who Avadi Yosef points to, we're going to follow him, also recognizes there's something about the three weeks that we can't say Shechionu Vikimonu Wazman Hazer. Why? Well, I'm happy. No. You're happy about the fruit. You're happy about perhaps what you've purchased, but you're purchasing it now when you're eating it now. This time is an overwhelming negative time. So when you make that bracha, there's a dissonance involved. So that is what he quotes from the, the tshuva. He also mentions, though, that if that for a pidyan aben or for a mitzvah, you should definitely, of course, do it in its time and make the bracha. And also, he quotes from the maril that if the item in, involved is going to not be available later, so then it's okay. Then this is the fruit will spoil. The bing cherry won't be available. So you can make the bracha then, even according to the Beis Yosef. But you definitely see that there is a kveda on making um, this bracha during this time. Now, again, the Vilna Gon feels that this is a chumra yaseira. Uh, even the, the Mishnah, the, the Shulchan Aruch writes that Tov Lizdoher, it's good to be careful about this, or, right? The language that he uses is not uh, definitive, but still it becomes part of the Shulchan Aruch. We not buy something because it's going to lead us to the, the problem of making Shachianu during the before the nine day starts. Well, if we can push it off, should we? If we're going to lose the chance to get the object, it would seem, of course, you should get the object. Well, what about the bracha? Can you hold off on the bracha? Well, it depends what the object is. So we know that there are um, brachas on fruits, but there's also brachas on objects. Objects that you buy. I mentioned before, suits and uh, expensive items of clothing that, that are significant. Maybe a special talus or a special frock, a Prince Albert coat, something that really means a lot to you. Here it seems the postkim. Uh, even today, we'll say you can make shachiyonim on such items. What's interesting is, is that there has been a tradition since the Ben Ishchai 
for Sephardim not to make a bracha, speaks about building a house. The postmen speak about buying a house, which is, of course, what most of us do. But you make a shechionu on this house. So the halacha is, based on the Shulchan Aruch, that you would make a bracha. So now, is this a problem of buying a house during this period? Now, what's interesting is that what is the idea of the Shechiyonu? The idea of the Shechiyonu is the simcha of acquisition. What many Poskin, Rebel Yoshev and others have indicated, and this really comes from earlier shitas, even from, uh, from, from the great Sephardi Poskin of Chaim Falagia, that if the item itself, you are disturbed about its ownership. Why would you be disturbed? Because you can't afford it. What about if it's, a, if it's a house that you had to purchase by going into debt, that you had to actually borrow money in order to buy it, and you're worried about, will you be able to make the payments on the house? Would you make a shechionu? Here, you're moving the house, but you know what? This house, I've got this thing over me. We have to go back to the essence of what shechionu is. Shechionu is the simcha that I'm alive, that this I can have this. Well, if everything here is tied up with I don't know if I'm going to pay. I mean, I got to have a place to put my kids, but I don't know if I'm going to make my mortgage payment every month. They're going to take the house away. Then you will not make Shechiyon. Um, Chochem Avadya says that if you feel you have an income that you can easily pay for your home, then you would. However, Chochem Avadya points out that since the time of the Ben Yishchai, we Sephardim haven't been making this bracha anyway. But even among the Ashkenazim who made the bracha, if you feel your income is strong, even though technically the only reason why you own the house is because you're able to borrow money, but you have enough money to keep on paying, then you would have probably that sense of simcha. Now, what's interesting is, of course, that many times it's not your house. Many times the actual, the way the mortgages work is that you are a co-owner of the house and the bank is really... Uh, has the, that type of ownership that they could come and take it away from you if you miss a couple of payments. So Revel Yoshev feels that if that's the case, that you don't have control. It's one thing, oh, I, the, the person I owe the money is going to uh, slap a lawsuit on me for not paying, but you're still the titular owner. It's another thing if you are the owner, uh, only that if the bank really has the primary uh, ownership and the title of the house, and you are this co-owner, and they could take it away, Sir Yosha felt that you would not make a Sheikhanu, even according uh, to the Ashkenazi Minhagen. Now, I had a question about a car. Is a car, uh, getting a car, would this be a reason to make a Sheikhanu, and therefore, perhaps, not get the car during the three weeks? Ramosha Feinstein, in one line, says... Nah, he says you should just say you should probably not get the car during the three weeks uh, because of the bracha of Shechianu that needs to be made. Well, um, my question is: Well, first of all, uh, what are, are you besimcha about this car? I have a situation where I had to get a third car. And the truth is, I got it before the three weeks started, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't wasn't sure when it was going to be delivered. And it's possible the Shechionu <laughs> would be made, oh, because it was delivered from 200 miles away, would the Shechionu be made once I actually saw the car, I was able to drive it. But 
I had a svar not to make Shachianu because I really didn't want to get this car. My daughter was moving. She was going to take one of the cars and I was forced to buy it. So when what you're buying is something you're forced to, because otherwise you can't share a car with your wife. So even though, even if I would own it completely and fully, it's not a, a purchase that I've now besimch about. An item that you need, and this would, this would hold true with a refrigerator as well, right? Your refrigerator breaks, and now you're getting a new refrigerator. An item that you really can't go through normal life with without, and you're forced to, and you wish you didn't have to. So there you don't have the simcha of buying something new. And um, combined with that would be the fact that I didn't buy the car outright, but I went to a credit union. And once again, you could assume that since the title is held by the credit union, so therefore we could use the other tzad not to make the shachiano, because if I don't make my payments to the credit union, they're going to come and repossess the car. So that would be a number as far as not to make uh, the shachiano, to be able to actually get the car during that during that period. It happens a lot during the um, period of summer is that we get flooded, unfortunately, by visitors from Eretz Yisrael uh, who are coming. I don't know if our listeners have the same thing that we have here in the Northeast, but we get flooded by visitors, by Mishkalochem, the people who are coming uh, to collect Stolchem. And first of all, let me just mention the fact that the Gemara says, that if a Gemara says in Baba Basra, that if a person comes to you and says, feed me because I'm hungry, you don't necessarily check out what's really going on with him. Um, you assume if he's coming to you, he says he's hungry, you have to worry that maybe he actually is starving. And therefore, you're not feeding him, might put him in the hospital or whatever it is. So you'd go to your house, you go to your fridge and, and you give him what he needs. However, if he said, I'll be shady, he says, I'm Oru and I'll be shady. Now, he, how does, why is he saying this? Well, he, he doesn't have shoes on. Um, his pants are ripped. He doesn't seem to have a, 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 a overshirt. There, interesting, the Allah says, despite the way he looks, you need to check out about him. Now, um, okay, because now you're giving him something that's not just going to go in his belly. You're giving him money. You're giving him an item of clothing that he could go and sell. You're giving him something which he could use. So you need to find out. Of course, this is where we have the, the modern minug of checking out and having people, you know, provide the type of, 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 of references where we can find out what's really going on with them if they're really deservant of tzedaka. But let's say a, a mashulach like this with a letter comes to the home and the wife decides that she is going to give Sadaka to him. Is she allowed to do this? So in Shulchan Aruch, it's interesting, Shulchan Aruch actually says that you're not supposed to take Sadaka if that is empowered by her uh, husband, that she is not allowed, you're not allowed to take uh, the Sadaka from her. Why? Because who says that she has the power to do that? Who says that she has the right to give, to, to uh, hand out this type of tzedakah for her husband? Um, in other words, the halacha is mashakana isha kana bayla. 
once a, once a marriage occurs, so now um, she, everything she owns is to her husband. So if the Gaboyim are taking the Tzedakah, they might be stealing. We don't know what he wants. So what would be, if, right? So <laughs> it's more a din on the Mishulach, I guess. If the Mishulach comes to the house and the wife is the one that's home, would be a problem. Does she need to get permission from her husband? Of course, if she has permission from her husband and she tells, asks her husband in advance, then of course, that's not a problem. But if, if that's not the case, and the woman and the husband maybe even argue about if they should get stuck or not. It's possible the husband feels he doesn't trust all these guys who come to the door. Maybe he feels he gives enough tzedakah in his own way that he doesn't want these people to get tzedakah. Is there a problem about her being the Baalist tzedakah in this case? So based on the Allah and Shulchan Aruch, there is. Now, does this change at all? Is there any change in this halacha of Bisman Hazer? That's the question. Now, Obviously, if there's a situation where uh, the, the Mishnah Melech says, uh, quoting the great Shlomo Luria, that if the wife is making her own money, that if the wife is a woman who is able to make, is, is able to uh, make money on her own, so therefore, she's already making money in the house. And since she's making money in the house, so there wouldn't be a need necessarily to worry about that. She has the right. She has the right. Now, even though technically it's a little bit dicey about how it is that that money is split up, but since she is the one, she has her own funds, uh, she is making something that's helping the, the family, so she has a right to give Stoko on her own. But let's say she's not. Let's say she's not. Could we uh, enforce the Psaq of the Shulchan Aruch and say that a woman should, is considered gezel if the woman decides to give tzedakah against the will of her husband? Approaches this question from a very interesting uh, way. The, we know that today, unfortunately, when a divorce occurs, what happens is, is that the, um, the, the Rabbanut and most all the Batei Dinim will give a 50-50 split of the the liquid assets of the home. Now, this might be based a little bit on American law. It might be based on English law. But this there, there has to be a justification for it. What is that justification? So the post-gim in Eretz Yisrael, the Dayanim have said that the woman is working. In other words, the job of home raising, of raising the children, of being involved. And again, we're talking about the traditional uh, man-woman gender uh, roles. But that gives her, in, in the eyes of the modern-day Dayanim and Eretz Yisrael, that gives her the right of 50% of everything in the house. And therefore, <laughs> hopefully they should never get divorced. But that's the indicator that even through their life, even indicating through where they are going, that that even beforehand that she is indeed entitled. And this, I think, is a modern-day, very important, somewhat feminist psaac, but it just tells you that even if there's never been a, a discussion, now Rabbi Viner says, clearly, 
this type of behavior could lead to a lack of shalom bites. If there is this debate between the husband and wife about who the tzedakah should go to, eventually this is going to turn into a marital difficulties between this couple. And therefore it's not ethically or uh, advisable in terms of a shalom bias. But in terms of gezel, that halacha is not true today based on, and again, the truth is, is that if Rabbi Nair is right, you almost need to rewrite uh, what was happening in, in, in with the Pesach and Shulchan Aruch, because the woman's role was always a, that type of role, probably even more then than it is now. The Rambam writes in Hilchas Matanasaniyim that that you should give stock to people in your own city before those of another city. The Rambam quotes a passage that is mentioned by the Sifrei. Uh, and as Rechaim Kanievsky in his Sefer on uh, the Rambam of Hilchas Mat Nasaniyim and his, his masterpiece, Derech Amunah writes that Achicha are the aniyim of your home. Hmm. Then there's aniyecha. Then there's aniyecha are the people who are considered something that we call the the b'nei bias or the shechenim. This is really a question. And then we have evyon chabartzecha or the the people in your city. Then we have the people in your country. Levyon chabartzecha. Okay, so that's the savior of who you give tzedakah to. So now, um, the, the first question would be, when I'm giving this tzedakah, uh, family first, the family that needs it. So there's a machlokas uh, uh, rishonim. Actually, it's a machlokas the Beis Yosef and the Ramah. Who is the most desperate? Is it your child or your parent? Now, obviously, there's a parent, there's a din of kibbutz avayim, and we paskin that the parent has to pay for his own uh, benefits for Kibbutz Ave. But let's say the parent doesn't have money. So who does this fellow have to give to? Does he have to give to his father and mother? Or does he have to give more to his children? So this is, a, this is actually found as a machlokas between the Beis Yosef and the Ramon about who would come first. Okay. Then what's the next level? How do we decide next? Well, the there is a discussion about who is is it all the relatives, right? So we've taken care of parents and children. What about uncles? What about brothers? What about them? Well, the halacha is that we figure out which one is considered the closer relative in terms of inheritance. And that would be also the one that you would give the tzedakah to prior to the other person. Would it make a difference if, let's say, your brother needed cash, uh, but your, uh, you know, but your nephew needs it even more because he needs it for an operation? Again, so here you would go into a sort of, and this you could really ask in the earlier case too, when it comes to giving tzedakah, do I start looking at the essential needs? of each person and does that leapfrog them over or do we say look here is your order and based on this order i'm going to give here first even though the person in the second spot you could say needs it more obviously we're talking about saving their life that's one thing but if it's if it's a certain question of need and how impoverished they are 
it's very difficult to be able to say the leapfrogging occurs. One of the, the issues that is somewhat unclear is what does it mean, uh, first of all, vis-a-vis uh, your relatives on your wife's side? We talked before about the husband and wife being a team. So does, is your brother-in-law, is he considered a karov uh, in the same way? And how about, if it's your, how about if you have two people knocking on the door? Let's say it's your brother and your brother-in-law, and they both have the exact same need. So it's interesting, the Pisgah Tshuva uh, is of the opinion and Shulchan Aruch, that we go with a two-third, one-third split, which the which is it's almost like you know yes well I'm much more I'm still more connected to my own blood relatives than my wife's, um, even though as we said you know the, we do look at this couple as a unit, the Aruch Shulchan uh, rejects that Rabbi Chil Mitzlapshti rejects that, and he says that no, there's an equal relationship between your wife's relatives and your relatives. Okay, but what's this next level, this level of the, the, the what, what's called, it's called, uh, you know, it's not your relatives, it's the people that are what? Who are those people? So the Ramah understands that to be the Shechemen, your neighbors, that your neighbors come before Evyonecha, are the people in your city. So there's a, there seems to be a new hierarchy that after family, there's the people in the neighborhood. Um, yeah. So who are those people in your neighborhood, as they said in Sesame Street, right? Right? The people in your neighborhood, what does that mean? What does it mean? The people on your block? The people that are in your section of town? Um, do they have Kadima over other Aniyam that are another part of the city? This seems to be, uh, the Ramos seems to feel yes. But how do you define what a section is? What is a shuna? Is it three houses, four houses? And Eretz Yisrael, Rebbe Yosha was asked about this. Because in Eretz Yisrael, they're very fond of saying, oh, this is called shunat uh, kadumim. This is shunat, uh, you know, shunat uh, Tel Aviv, or shunat Tel Arza. This is, right? So Rebbe Yosha says, do they ask what a shuna is? Um, Rechaim Dinevsky actually brings achronim that say that shenim aren't the people who are your the people who you live in proximity to, but the people that you interact with. They might live five miles away, but they but they're at your house. They're people that are your friends based on some pre-existing situation, because we all have these circles of relationships. So that, that Rav Chaim, although Rav Chaim starts sort of against his father-in-law, his second interpretation seems to back up that Shainan doesn't mean necessarily proximity. Now, of course, you know, obviously, you know, we live in Jewish communities, and sometimes Jewish communities will say, well, look, well, you live in Highland Park, you live in Edison, you live in, in Lakewood, you live in whatever area. So there, the reason why you might have to give tzedakah to that to the people there is because the rabbis of that place have a certain power. And they have a certain power to say, if you've joined our community, this is one of the rules of the community that you have to give to the aniyam of our space. But had they not imposed that, it's possible that this idea of what a shuna is, is very elastic. And it's hard necessarily to, 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 to demand 
as Rebel Yashub says, just because some people decided to call this a shkuna doesn't mean that. Uh, and I'm not getting into, by the way, this other halacha, which is that um, that the Bnei Eretz Yisrael are considered like people uh, in your city. I'm not really even getting into that. That, of course, is another halacha, which, of course, is very relevant. Um, and, 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 and often, that is one of the reasons why the Mishalachim are able to come from Eretz Yisrael and say, look, you know, Bnei Eretz Yisrael. Now, is there a hierarchy in Eretz Yisrael? It's based on a drosha from the Gemara, from the Sifrei. The Shulchan writes, based on a drosha of the Sifrei, Yoshvei Eretz Yisrael, Kodmin, Yoshvei Chutz Laoretz. Um, but right before that, he said, Aniya Iro Kodmin Acheres. So it sounds like first you deal with the Aniyam in your city, and then you go to Yoshvei Eretz Yisrael. And that's why many times when the Shalachim are coming from Israel, you need to ask yourself a question. Are you doing sufficiently enough in the city that you're living in in terms of giving uh, the, that type of stalker? Uh, since I have this page up, I just mentioned a psak that the Ramon says here from the Herald's back to Rav And I think many people like, uh, you know, uh, even Ezra Scrooge would say, Parnosus atzmo kodemis l'koloda. <laughs> Your own part also comes from everybody. You don't even look until you have your own part also. And then, and then of course, the Ramos says you go with parents first, which again, uh, the, the Beis Yosef says you go with children first. What does this Ramah mean in terms of, hey, I don't have enough Parnosa? A person has to be honest what they, that is. Uh, people, a person can get used to a certain style of living. He could say, I never have to get stoko, I have to make sure I have enough for myself. And the boy, or an Italian ice or something, a low fat yogurt. <laughs> right? Is is what sort of is there some halachic problems here in enjoying this type of food? Well, first of all, you have a question about the bracha. Let's say you go into your carvel, if it still has Zajbacha, and you get that soft serve into your cone. And yeah, it already starts to melt, as you know, if it's a really hot day, despite the air conditioning they might have in the Carvel. And you make that brocha. Well, is there a problem in terms of eating it out in the out in the street? Can you eat it out in the street if you make the brocha inside the Carvel? Um, you're holding it at the same time. So some posts can say that since the uh even though you go into a different rishus because um, but you've, you're eating one gush. The ice cream is really one piece. And you're cont- although you're not licking it continuously as you're going out the door, the din of shinui mokom and brocha, that you have to make a new brocha if you're in a new area, might not apply. Um, however, um, there are other postcom that hold that anytime you go into a separate rishos, you have to make a new brocha, and that's how most posts can remachner. And they would say, including Moshe Feinstein, that you would have to, if you go into a separate rishos, you would have to be machner. So let's say um, you decide that you don't make the brocha on the ice cream until you step out of the store. Well, if you're on one street, even though you're walking down the street, 
you're probably okay making that bracha, even though you're walking four or five streets while you're licking your cone or sipping your slurpee. Um, however, let's say what you decided to get was donut pops or a little little donut slices. I forgot what those called muffins. I don't know what they're called exactly. But let's or let's say a bag of potato chips. There, the post can say since they're separate items, and you're there, you can't just say, "Well, I was holding the bag the whole time." Since it's not just the same apple or the same ice cream or the same Slurpee, there, Rav Moshe holds that you would have to make a separate bracha. So clearly, you would be making a, you would be having an unnecessary bracha, opening the bag of chips and beginning to eat it. While you're walking in the street, that would be, you wouldn't have to make a separate bracha. But if you're eating the chips and then running into your car, your car would have a din of a separate rishus, and you might have a problem there. You probably would have a problem in terms of making a bracha again, even though it was in your mind the whole time that you were going to just run into the 7-Eleven, get the chips, run into your car, and keep on driving, even if you had the motor running the whole time. Rabbi Viner mentions another problem here. That's the problem of Achila Beshuk. Gemara says that if someone is Eichel Beshuk, he's Doimelikelev, that he's like a dog, and he is Pasul Eidus. Now, not Minatora, possibly, but he's Pasul Eidus, Midrabodom. So, can you do an act of like eating in the street and being Pasul Eidus? People do it in the summer. Why would you be Pasul Eidus? So really, this is an interesting question. Um, the, the Rambam uh, indicates that it's actually a psul edis menatora, when a person eats in the street. And he says the reason is, is because he goes against society's norms to the point that he has no sense of his own embarrassment. And he's, he's willing to... to uh, he doesn't care. Uh, he, the Rambam puts this together uh, with someone who, while he's working, strips his body uh, down, and he's not afraid of appearing in, in what most people would consider a very embarrassing situation. That person, because he doesn't subscribe to society's norms, doesn't so care so much about stealing either. So the Rambam says that you have to be chosh, so you don't know this could be a psul daraisa. The Rashi puts it a little bit less aggressively. Rashi says the idea of eating in the shuk is is because he has no worries of his own embarrassment. He doesn't mind embarrassing himself. Well, both according to the Rambam, both according to Rashi, I would suggest that today these doesn't this this is not an issue. Rabbi Viner mentions how one should refrain from it, but I would say that today it's become the norm. Today, we don't consider somebody who's eating in the street old, because probably the guy who's looking at him is also eating in the street. In the time of Chazal, this was considered what a dog would do. But humans, of course, would only eat in a very genteel, civilized manner. Um, by the way, Rabbeinu Tam, on this Gemara says, in order to explain why your puzzle ate this, he says, it's not about somebody who just eats in the street. The shuk is not a street. The shuk is a place, as you know, from Machni Yehuda and other places, is like in Mexico, we call it a mercado, 
where a person is, there's a number of, there's a stand where there's fruits and vegetables ready for everybody to eat. And he walks around from, from one table to the other, doing what? Grabbing food. Now, this again gets into another question about people who go to uh, grocery stores and sample continuously. But there, we might be able to allow that based on the fact that the store encourages it. The store wants you to take a bite or two in order to buy a big bag. But if your purpose in taking those bites and the purpose of Rabbeinu Tom's guy who's going from um, table to table is only to be able to uh, get a meal and pretend that he might, oh, let me taste some of this, I might buy it, but really this is a way to get lunch. And that person is a goslin. That person is stealing. And as a goslin, he's bustleatus because he doesn't care about uh, someone else not having money. He doesn't care about the, the proper person who should get the money. That's why you wouldn't be able to accept that person. So it still might be the mita, perhaps, of uh, what a tamachachim should. I should tell you that Reb Gifter, many, many years ago, the Rajiv tells, felt that even going into a soda machine, and getting the bottle or the can and drinking it straight from the bottle and the can, he felt this was not the proper behavior of a pentora. He felt this was something that a person should, you know, uh, should. Uh, there's one question about walking with it and, and just walking around, but there's other thing of just drinking straight from the bottle. He felt this was something that is 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 considered crude. Um, I, obviously, if you go there to stroll today or to any of the places. Uh, to, that are now overwhelmed by this incredible heat wave, everybody is walking around with a bottle of water, like a canteen that they need it. So once again, it, a lot really depends on where society has shifted as far as this type of behavior. Back to the uh, the three weeks. One of the things that, um, as I mentioned, I've seen this far in Ashkenazim, what would be if um, somebody had made a, Chasana, right before Shabbos Abedamas. Well, as we're recording today, it's already too late. But let's say a couple of days ago, uh, there would still be the Sheva Brochus. Would you be allowed to have a, a Sheva Brochus after the three weeks? I mean, they got married. Many people did that. How many, you know, I'm sure there's many of our listeners went to weddings on July 4th. Um, what occurred afterwards? Did they, um, uh, were they, it, right? Were they? Did they go to Shaver Brochus afterwards? Did the couple have Shaver Brochus? Well, yes, you can have Shaver Brochus. You don't have to stop your Shaver Brochus. There's the simcha, and it's not. And you're coming for their simcha, so you could definitely attend. But what should be the etiquette at that Shaver Brochus? Can you get up and dance when the chosen and kavla come in? We know that the Mogan Avram writes that by Ashkenazim for sure you shouldn't get up and do dancing. Well, what about here? It's for the Simch of the Chosan and Kaul, who got married the day before Shiva So there's an interesting machlokus of the Gedoli Aposkim in Eretz Yisrael. Ravosner, the great Chosidish Aposek of Bnei Brak, of the Chazanish himself, understood his, his, his greatness as a Posek. He just died a number of years ago. Ravosner, the author of the Shevet Lady, said that once even though had it been not yet Shiva Subhidamas, you would have perhaps you would bring in a, a person to play music and you would he says you shouldn't, he says, just sing. 
Just get up. Just make nigunim. That's it. Roshom uh, Zaman Arabach felt that you could actually have a circle dance when the Chosna Kal will come in and do it before and afterwards, and that wouldn't be a problem. When he was asked about music, he said, well, is that the minan? How many Sheva Brachosan have music? It's not necessarily so, so normal, so therefore, uh, obviously, after the, the three weeks begin, you don't necessarily need uh, to have this music. However, from Roshom Zaman Orabach's answer, you see that in certain communities where <laughs> every Shevabrachos is with some sort of music or some sort of musician, that you would be allowed to have uh, that during the three weeks because, and you'd be able to be part of that. You could actually sing and dance and be part of that, and that wouldn't be a, a problem. What about in general, um, listening to music for someone, let's say, as I mentioned before, the Sfardim? Well, the Sfardim, we said they can get married up until the Shvush, till Rishchodeshov. Can they listen to music? Well, here there's a whole debate about what listening to music is. Um, is recorded music different? Rav Hutner suggested that maybe that Chazal were only talking about live music. They didn't know about recorded music. Maybe recorded music is not part of Hanogas Havelis. Uh, as Ramosha Feinstein points out, though, this whole issue of music is not really about the nine days or the three weeks. It's really a halacha in general, based on the Mishnah and Sota and the Gemara and Gitan, that you're not supposed to have music in general during the whole year, listening to live music. True, everybody is Mako. So as Ramesha says, people are Mako without a real rationale, even at dinners and of, of, of yeshivas and everything, with live music, which are really, there's no really halachic basis to allow it. However, this is the type of thing that everybody has been Mako, but they're Machmir during times of mourning like the three weeks okay well where's where do we what do we what do we say so shama zaman Arbach again uh said a psaq now he it's interesting that when he gave this psaq he prefaced it by saying everybody comes to ask me about this questions he says why aren't people asking me more significant questions like about the the, the intricacies of keep it of aim and how ribis works instead they're asking me these questions but he says i'll tell you he says, if the music is meant to lead to dancing, it's the music that's supposed to sort of like put you on, uh, get your toes tapping, and then, oh, I just got to go and dance for that, right? Then it's also, but if it's music that's maromame, you, it, you, it uplifts you, it, it puts you in a sublime place, sort of the way like in the movie Amadeus, the way Salieri, when he, when he was just imagining the music, when he was looking at uh, Mozart's notes. But imagine listening to uh, a type of symphony that that just elevates you. Now, maybe there's, are you, does anybody really dance? I mean, even in the, uh, the 1812 overture, right? right? After the cannons go off, are you, are, you, are you jumping up and dancing, right? I don't think so. And therefore, he says that music really should be mutter. In the same way, chazonis, as we know, chazonish music should also be alakakli mutter. Now, he says, I don't know if I want to be mafars in this psaac, that everybody should hear about it. But he says, based on that logic, what the iser is, that should be mutter. Um, Rav Vosner and others uh, uh, felt that you clearly can't say that this is not a cliche, this, this tape recorder, this record player, this, this iPhone. Music is coming out of it. Would it make enough community if it would be um, uh, a cappella music? 
we know there's a whole industry of acapella singers and a lot of what they when they were making their 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 records part of what they were doing was pushing oh this is something you can listen to in the three weeks yeah it's acapella there's no real right now i don't know if you've heard of course the maccabees and others uh the the wise studs there's a whole group of jewish singers the hevra that they're all uh, acapella singers well as Maybe acapella shouldn't be a problem. Rav Moshe Shol Klein, again, who is dying under a Bosner, B'nai Brock says, but if you listen to the music, you can see that it's very difficult to determine whether it's actually an instrument or not. They, they are produced in a way that they, it's not just like one voice that's singing. They're produced in a way that it gives the impression, because it's all recorded anyway. So if you hold a Karfutner that recorded music is not live music, it doesn't make a difference whether it's a cappella or with actual instruments. But if you hold that that this is called a music box, so Moshe Scholklein feels that a cappella music is basically music as well, and therefore one should refrain from it. I should mention, of course, in this regard, two other psakim, the psak of Rabbi Yaakov Breish, and what I heard personally from Rabbi Heinemann. Rabbi Yaakov Breish said that somebody who is feeling a sense of depression. Um, and he was talking about women and men who had come through the Holocaust and others. But we all know you don't need a Holocaust to feel depressed and feel upset. There's so many personal tragedies and difficulties, which we don't have to go into. Why? But we know music has that ability to soothe, as ability, even if it's happy music and music that maybe you'd want to dance to. But if the reason you're listening to it is not because you're trying to engage in some sort of simcha, but you actually need it because depression is deadly. And this somehow alleviates your Morish Torah. So Rabbi Yaakov Reich allowed it. And I think there's many people out there today that could definitely use this center. And perhaps, again, I, you don't need to hear live music, but if that's what you need for your depression, that might be all right as well. Rafineman told me, and I heard this psaac from him directly, that if the reason why you're listening to the music, let's say you, you, you got used to driving with music, and somehow you're able to make the right turn where you need to. You're able to get to, on that exit ramp. You're able to get to your place of uh, that you have charted out for you. And you can only do it properly. Or even if you're found in a place where you're not sure where you are, but somehow the music allows you to concentrate. In other words, the music is something that can somehow take the place of all these other uh, overwhelming like, thoughts and aspects that are coming into your brain and then and listening to the music allows that to sort of become static and diluted into the music that you're hearing and then the other part of your brain is concentrating what you need to do i i i know this very well because when i need to really work on something i'll listen to classical music and the classical music is able to blot out other things that might be uh, gathering in my head that'll stop me from becoming more effective and to concentrate. So if that's the reason why you're listening to the music, so again, this would not be a problem because you're not listening to it in order just to go and get uh, this type of enjoyment. Um, I'll end with a uh, an interesting psaac from uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman Eurbach as well. 
Um, it's absurd that other uh, people from the from the Haredi world didn't understand. Um, they felt it was incorrect. And in fact, uh, one of the great Toskim and Abrak disagreed directly. I'll tell you what it is. I mentioned before that the difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim in terms of many minhagim, and especially about uh, taking haircuts and shaving. But taking haircuts and shaving would be usser for uh, Ashkenazim from Shavasar Batamus, but allowed for Sephardim until the Shavua Shechal Boi Tishibov. Okay, what about if you're an Ashkenazi barber? Is there a problem in giving a Sephardi customer a haircut? Well, generally we'd say no. Why should there be? An Ashkenazi barber is has a business, and many people are coming into the shop. Um, if an Ashkenaz like him comes in, should he say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this? That gets into a question about with naiver, right? This is, this is a minute uh, you stroll that you're not supposed to be pirate scatter, right? But you don't know why he needs the haircut. Perhaps he needs the haircut because uh, his job demands it. So I don't know if you have to ask him. But okay. But what could be wrong with giving a Sephardi haircut? A non-Jew comes in, there's definitely no question. Still, you should not, the Ashkenazi should not give him that haircut. Uh, if he has no other barber, the Sephardi needs it. But really, it's not the best thing to be done. It goes against. Now, why? Uh, as I said, Rabnissa Karelitz felt there was no problem. Um, so I think what's what's really involved here is uh, can be explained by another Pesach of Shlomo Zalman. Shlomo of course, had a yeshiva called Torah, and based on what Chacham Abad and others did, Sephardi were getting married, and Sephardi Shabbat from the yeshiva were getting married. Zalman said, but because I'm Ashkenaz, I'm not going to be Masada Kedushin for those weddings. Now, I'll, I'll take a bracha from the chuppah. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll come to the chuppah. I'll sit at the wedding. I'll hear the music because I'm coming for you. But I won't be the Masada Kedushin. I won't be the one who's supposed to be the efficient, who's really putting everything together. In other words, as much as we understand the difference between ourselves, and we know that there's fire to Ashkenazim, we know the minhagim. It's part of the beauty of recognizing people with different minhagim and understanding them. But when I have to actually engage in something that for me is also, and here's another Jew just like me, it's, it's the, the mental um, dissonance of doing this. I'm the Masader Kedushin. In other words, you, from where I'm coming from, Kedushin shouldn't be happening. So yes, I come because I recognize a different minhagim, but that I should be the vehicle for the kedushin to happen, that I should be the vehicle for this haircut to occur. There's just a dissonance involved. It's almost like I, I won't be able to balance that. I'm giving you the haircut. In other words, I'm making you look good. From my perspective, Jews should look unkempt during this period. They should already start to feel the pain of the korban. And therefore he felt, look, it shouldn't be done. It's a psychological, subtle type of idea that you have to be, again, you have to be a godel like uh, to be oymen on that. But I think it's, again, reflective of, 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 of the knowledge of, of, not only of the knowledge of Menaga, but also the knowledge of the human psyche and that we should somehow tap into whenever we're, we're issuing hairos uh, and piskei Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.